Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking a cranberry and rum. How about you, Jenny? I have a hot apple cider with some spiced wine in it. Oh, very nice. Very good for these fall days. Yeah, I know we keep talking about that a lot, but it really is exciting to be in the fall season, I think. I love Halloween. I don't love Christmas, but I was in a store earlier today and they were decked out and it did kind of make me excited. I won't lie. Listen, any time to celebrate is a good time. So let's get into this case. Today's case is a little different than what we've done before. It's a little more lighthearted, very nostalgic, I would say. And we'll be discussing the story of Lou Pearlman and how he conned hundreds of people, including two of the biggest boy bands in history. And to accompany this case, we made a drinking game for everyone. So whenever you hear us say the word blimp or lanjo or the name of a band member, take a sip. You're going to finish your drink when we say Ponzi scheme. And you're going to take a shot when we say the name Incognito Johnson. And we will get there. (laughs) So cheers, everyone. Let's have some fun with this episode. Louis J. Perlman was born on June 19th, 1954 in the Flushing neighborhood of Queens, New York. He was the only child of High Perlman, who ran a dry cleaning business, and Rini Perlman, who worked as a cafeteria lunch aide. Lou's parents doted on him and had very high expectations. Growing up, Lou kept to himself, and he did not have many friends, other than Alan Gross. Gross's interest in aviation rubbed off on Lou at a young age. The boys lived right across the street from the Flushing Airport, and they would watch the planes and blimps take off for fun. Lou was known as a liar to the other kids in school, and he even invited classmates to his bar mitzvah saying that his cousin Art Garfunkel, who was one of the biggest musical stars at the time, would be there. And of course, everyone came kind of thinking it was a lie, but probably hoping it was true. And this actually was true. He was Art Garfunkel's cousin. And many believe that this is where Lou's interest in the music industry stemmed from. And even as a child, Lou had plans to become rich. Lou studied business at Queens College and graduated in the 1970s. After college, he founded a helicopter taxi service in New York City after creating the business plan in college. Lou claims this helped him earn his first $1 million by the age of 21. In 1978, he got in touch with Theodore Wollenkemper, the head of a German company known for building blimps, and invited him for dinner at his parents' apartment in Queens. Wollenkemper was impressed by Lou and allowed him and a friend to study at his facilities in Germany. When Lou returned to the U.S., he moved onto the aircraft business and created Airship Enterprises Limited with his childhood friend, Alan Gross. Somehow, he convinced the clothing company, Jordash, to lease a blimp for promotional purposes. But Lou didn't have a blimp at the time. He ended up buying an old used blimp that crashed on its maiden voyage. Lou blamed the crash on the weight of the gold paint that Jordash requested the blimp be painted with. But Gross believes this crash was done on purpose as an insurance fraud scheme scheme that allowed Lou to collect two and a half million dollars. He also said the blimp never did the required number of practice rounds required by the FAA. Gross felt betrayed by Lou and left the company. And he did question Lou and Lou felt like Gross was no longer trustworthy and just threw him aside. Years later, Lou got into penny stocks after meeting with the Wall Street broker. 
1985, he was able to raise $3 million in a public offering for his new company, Airship International, and purchase a 13-year-old blimp from Wollenkemper. He then got advertising contracts with McDonald's and was leasing blimps to MetLife Insurance, SeaWorld, and Golf Oil after the help from a British investor. However, to expand the company, overpriced stock was sold to unsuspecting investors. By the 1990s, Lou relocated to Orlando, Florida, where he had owned a vacation home. In addition to Airship International, he also owned a private company called Transcontinental Airlines, which was an aircraft leasing business co-owned by Theodore Wollenkemper. According to sources, Transcon Air operated more than 49 aircraft, including 14 727s, and had an annual revenue of $78 million. Lou was seeking more investors and was able to receive funds from prominent Wall Street bankers, real estate moguls, and professors. He also began selling small amounts of the company's stock to retirees out of a small brokerage house in Florida. Lou got these investors to trust him by claiming the program was guaranteed by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the giant American International Group insurance company, and Lloyd's of London. Around the same time as his companies were growing strong, Perlman became seriously interested in the music industry. He claims he got the inspiration when New Kids on the Block chartered his planes to concert. He learned that they were making $100 million a year and saw the light. Julian Bench claims that Lou told him his dream was to be in the music industry and start a group like New Kids on the Block and offered to help him get a group started. And in 1992, Lou's dream started to become a reality. He placed an ad in a local newspaper announcing auditions for a boy band. After several auditions, he recruited recruited AJ McLean, Brian Luttrell, Nick Carter, Kevin Richardson, and Harvey Durow, and they formed the Backstreet Boys. Lou came up with the name after Orlando's Backstreet Flea Market. Their first show was at SeaWorld Orlando in 1993, and the band consistently toured theme parks and malls. They were signed to Jive Records and toured Europe to gain notoriety. In 1995, their debut became a smash hit internationally, but they wouldn't become successful in the United States until 1997. By then, Airship International was failing and their stock shares plummeted. However, investors weren't worried because they were excited by Lou's music ventures and felt they could rely on his other company, Transcon Airlines, and its subsidiaries, which included TCBY and Chippendales. Lou served as a father figure to the Backstreet Boys, especially to Kevin, who had lost his father at a young age. Together, they became a family. Their nickname for him was Big Papa, and he provided his bands, the Backstreet Boys and later NSYNC, with housing, food, and clothes. He even sent NSYNC through rigorous boot camp where they learned to dance and sing and through birthday parties for members. Lou was dedicated to making his band successful and even chartered a medical plane to get the Backstreet Boys across the country for a show. Lou and the band would go from radio station to radio station and do interviews to get their music played. According to Lou, he spent over $3 million on the Backstreet Boys before he saw any profit. Then, in June of 1997, the group had their first U.S. hit with Quit Playing Games With My Heart. Little did the band know, Lou was working on creating other groups that would become their competition. NSYNC formed in 1995, and band members almost recruited one another. Justin Timberlake came in off his new Mickey Mouse Club fame and brought in J.C. Chazé, 
and the two then recruited Joey Fatone, who brought in Chris Kirkpatrick. Lance Bass described NSYNC as the red-headed stepchild because Lou kept the band a secret from the Backstreet Boys. Even the band's expenses went under a secret name. NSYNC toured Europe, but they were struggling. That was until they took a Disney Channel gig that the Backstreet Boys passed on. Their music quickly moved up the charts, and the Backstreet Boys weren't pleased that their direct competition was managed by the same team. The boys claim Lou pitted the bands against each other, and would essentially tell each band that the other was smack-talking and gossiping about them. This led to a real rivalry between the groups. Knowing who Lou was as a person, it's not surprising that he used this manipulative strategy, but it paid off, and it helped with record sales. Fans felt like they had to pick between the darker, harmonizing Backstreet Boys and the more casual Boys Next Door of NSYNC and fans remained loyal to their favorite band and its members. Both bands were regulars on MTV's Total Request Live, or TRL, and toured the world. The level of success made both bands assume they were raking in profits, but they thought wrong. Inklings of distrust arose for the Backstreet Boys in 1997 when Brian Luttrell began wondering how little income he was making despite nonstop touring and selling out arenas and stadiums. While Lou was bringing in millions, the band members were making about $12,000 per member per year. In the Boy Band Con documentary, Lance Bass said he assumed that they'd be getting one large paycheck for all their work. And Bass remembers that Lou brought the boys and their families out to a big dinner where he finally gave them their checks. And to everyone's surprise, the boys of NSYNC had only earned $10,000. And this was after selling millions of records and working nonstop for years. J.C. Chazé's uncle, who was a lawyer, took a look at their contract and was shocked to find one of the worst music contracts he'd ever seen, and even advised the band to get out as soon as possible. In the contract, Lou was named as the sixth member of NSYNC. Lou said that this was a good idea because that way the band wouldn't need to pay a manager, but this allowed Lou to actually make the same amount each member made. This six-member deal was also in the Backstreet Boys contract as well. The bands also weren't familiar with the term recoupable expenses, which are expenses applied against the earned income and royalties. For the band's cases, this included record pressing, fancy dinners, and producer fees, all expenses they assumed Lou was taking care of. Things came to a head for the band during a 1997 charity basketball game against one another. On a bus, Brian Luttrell announced to everyone that Lou was lying to them all. A former manager for both bands said that Lou was seeing everything in blimp terms, and that contracts need to be changed as artists grow and become more successful. Brian sued and the other Backstreet Boys joined in 1998. They were eventually able to settle and get their freedom, but Lou did retain some of their earnings. Things were a little different for NSYNC, though. They filed their lawsuit in 1999 for Lou's illicit business practices. The band and their record label thought that this would be the end of NSYNC and that Lou would win. However, they were able to find a legal loophole in their contract. The contract stated that the group needed to be signed to a U.S. record label within a certain time frame. Though they were signed by a record label in that time Time frame, it was a German company. They were out of the contract, but Lou sued for several things, including the name InSync, saying that he was in fact InSync. Fans gathered outside of the courthouse to pray for the band and send their well wishes. Lou lost the lawsuit, and the band was able to sign a deal with Jive and keep their name. The legal troubles were even used as the inspiration for the band's next album, No Strings Attached, and the music video for their single Bye Bye Bye. 
Several other bands Lou managed either sued or broke up around the same time as everything else. Both the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were hurt by Lou's deception. Lou had been a part of their families and they couldn't believe that someone they trusted so deeply would steal from them. Lance Bass said that Lou was mad when confronted and he immediately went from his jovial self to being a cold manager. Lou also felt betrayed by both bands since he was responsible for their success. Legal troubles didn't stop Lou from creating more bands and artists including Aaron Carter, which is Nick's younger brother, C-Note, Innocence, Take 5, LFO and O-Town, who was created on his reality TV show Making the Band. Lou felt like he needed to one-up his former bands and save his brand. These bands were successful, but they were never as big as Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. And boy bands and girl groups also started to lose their popularity. In 2002, Lou acquired talent agency Options Talent. The The agency's executives had criminal records and clients were constantly filing complaints with the Better Business Bureau, stating they did not receive anything in return for their fees. This led to a lengthy investigation from the state of Florida, but Lou never faced any legal consequences. Many believe that this was due to the fact that he was close with Florida's then Attorney General, Charlie Crist. Lou's Ponzi scheme was beginning to come to an end in the early 2000s. Investors began to wonder where their money was. People were not receiving any payments or annual statements. Lou began receiving loans from banks across the country, which allowed him to pay investors and gave him some time. None of these banks noticed that the Transcon Airlines was not a company. All of the company's financial statements and tax return were lies, and it had no planes. In fact, one of Alan Gross's model planes was used on promotional material. Investors to one of Transcon Airways programs began complaining to Florida's Office of Financial Regulations and investigation into Lou's illicit financial activities began. The lie started to come to light. Lou sold off or gave away his cars and went into hiding. Blogs dedicated to the case were set up and a tip from a German tourist led to Lou's arrest in Bali, Indonesia in 2007. At his Bali hotel, Lou was registered under the name A. Incognito Johnson. He was returned to America and indicted on three charges of bank fraud and a single count of mail and wire fraud, with more indictments to be expected. He did plead guilty to money laundering, and in 2008, he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison, which was one of the longest sentences for fraud charges. Lou died of cardiac arrest on August 19, 2016. There was 2,100 investors, a majority of them retired people from his Ponzi scheme who had been defrauded and many of them lost all of their money. At one point, he owed investors $96 million. The Backstreet Boys have sold over 1 million records worldwide, making them one of the best-selling boy bands of all times and one of the world's most successful musical artists. In 2014, Lou told The Hollywood Reporter, You know, I deeply regret what happened and I'll be back. NSYNC has sold over 70 million records worldwide and has two diamond albums, which means each of those albums sold over 10 million copies. NSYNC disbanded in 2006 and the Backstreet Boys took a brief hiatus, but they still tour and make music together. Both bands have left a lasting impact on music and culture. While this case is straightforward, there is one question in theory we have to address, and that's the allegations of Lou Pearlman being a possible sexual predator. Lou is presumed innocent, 
and unfortunately due to his death, there is no way to hold him accountable in the court of law. Many have accused Lou of inappropriate sexual behavior and claimed he got into the boy band industry to be around attractive young boys. Denise McLean, AJ of the Backstreet Boys mom, said, quote, As a mother, you kind of put two and two together. Yet there was always that fine line where you sit back and went, Okay, is this a guy who always wanted to be a father or an uncle? Is this all innocent or is it more? End quote. There have been rumors of inappropriate incidences with the youngest member of the Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter and Lou, and Denise McLean talked a little bit about that, and she said that she had heard Nick suddenly became uncomfortable staying at Lou's after always being enthusiastic to stay at his home. Exact details of the incident have never been addressed, but Nick's mom, Jane, has said, quote, the financial scandal is the least of his injustices. End quote. Tim Christopher of Take 5 has recalled a sleepover where Lou came out in a towel and wrestled with the boys until his towel came off, leaving him naked. He also claims Lou showed the band security videos of female members of the band Innocence sunbathing topless and using Lou's tan beds while nude, as well as showing them pornographic movies. Tim Christopher's mom has said that Lou very often alienated the parents from the children. Rich Cronin of LFO gave some pretty damning statements when he was interviewed by Howard Stern. He said that Lou told him LFO was offered a massive European deal, but the manager wanted to touch his penis and that he could practice on Lou if he wanted to. Despite these allegations and rumors, many, including business partners and performers, have claimed they never saw Lou act sexually inappropriate. An attorney who sued Perlman did tell Vanity Fair, quote, None of these kids will ever admit anything happened. They're all too ashamed, and if the truth came out, it would ruin their careers. Del, what do you think of this case as a whole? The allegations, the scamming, the infamy, I guess, of Lou Pearlman. So while I'm not sure whether Lou was inappropriate with anyone, I am sure he was a con man and someone who would do anything to make money. He didn't care for the people around him and he took all the blessings and the bricks that he received with a grain of salt. I think that it's really unfortunate that the bands that I know that I grew up with and that you grew up with were created by someone who wasn't a nice individual. And the fact that he profited off of his cons is just, it's sad. It's just really sad. It is really sad. And again, I don't know what to say about the inappropriate behavior. We all know that someone can be a sex offender and, you know, be the nicest person on the planet and no one would suspect them. So it's not necessarily fair to just judge it based off what other people have said, but it's something we need to consider. And we have to talk about it when we talk about Lou Pearlman. He's such a piece of work. I don't know what else to say. We're going to get a little more into his manipulation. And now it's time for this week's You Done Good Award. The award goes to Backstreet Boys band member Brian Luttrell for realizing he and his bandmates were not being paid fairly by Lou Pearlman. And another award goes to J.C. Chazé's lawyer uncle for realizing that NSYNC did not have a fair contract. Where would we be without you guys? Unfortunately, NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys aren't the only artists who's been burned by management or the music industry. The music industry is known for being a very shady business. Many artists have come forward with claims of being taken advantage of and that their contracts were set up in a way that they typically owe money to the record company. This has even led to some groups going bankrupt because of the money that they owed. 
One example is TLC. TLC had to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy despite selling millions of records. They were $3.5 million in debt and they only each received 56 cents of each album that they sold. And remember, they had to split that 56 cent three ways. Arista Records, LaFace Records, and Pebbletone were all charging the members for expenses related to their investment in recording costs and distribution costs. LaFace and Pebbles went even further and charged the group for airline travel, hotels, promotion, music videos, food, clothing, and other expenses. The members stated that after all the expenses that were charged by the labels, in addition to lawyers' fees, manager fees, producer costs, and taxes, they each only took home about $50,000 per year. And keep in mind, this was after selling over 11 million records with Crazy Sexy Cool alone. TLC also stated that, unfortunately, the more successful they became, the more they owed to their labels. And they did try to renegotiate their deals with LaFace and Pebbles, but they were told that they were being money hungry and that it wasn't going to happen. Bankruptcy was their only way out. After a two-year battle, TLC was able to get a new contract with LaFace and Pebbles let them out of their contract, but she got royalty payments. And keep in mind, she didn't write one song. She didn't sing on one record. All she did was get lucky and had the band sign a really bad deal with her. Tony Braxton also had a similar problem with Arista and LaFace that led her to filing for bankruptcy. I love TLC so much. They're one of my absolute favorite groups. And it just makes me so sad to hear all of this happen. And I don't even think it's because of, I mean, I know we can question like, well, did people take advantage of them more because they were women, because they were women of color? Who knows? I honestly, I kind of don't think so because the industry as a whole is so money hungry and very manipulative. It is. And that leads into something else about the music industry. And that's the fact that artists are not being compensated for their work. And the music industry has a big problem Problem with artists actually being able to own their own work. Masters in music refers to the original recording from which copies are made and distributed. So think of it as the hard copy to something. And the ownership of one's masters gives an artist control over how and when their music is used. Prince once said, quote, if you don't own the masters, then the master owns you, end quote. This is because the profits from the sale of a piece of work goes to the owner of the masters and not the artist or the songwriters. The owner then distributes the profits based on whatever contracts are in place. This is also related to whether a particular piece of music is used in marketing or in other things like movies. Various artists have tried to own their masters with varying success. Unfortunately, the more profitable you are as an artist, the less likely a label want to give you ownership of your masters. This has been the case for Taylor Swift, Kanye West, JoJo, and that's just three names in the last, you know, four or five years. There's been problems with artists owning their masters for a very long time. I mean, the record companies are so powerful. I feel like they do kind of get the media in on it too, and they create reputations for these musicians to like, oh, they're so hard to work with. They're so controlling, but they're doing the work. These musicians, they're out there. We like them. We don't like them because of the record company. We don't care about the producers. We like them for them and who their artistry and how they make us feel. So why shouldn't they have control over all of this? So, I mean, all this to say that the record 
industry is definitely really shady. And unfortunately, as the ways to make money in the industry change, new artists are having an even harder time becoming financially stable. British singer Sting once lamented that he's glad that he's not starting off in the music business now. Young talent rely on the adults around them to make sure that they're getting the best possible deal. Unfortunately, this is not allowed in the music industry, and the artist ends up getting signed to a deal for long amounts of time for little money. For example, Justin Bieber signed his first deal when he was 13. JoJo signed her first deal when she was about 14, 15, and she actually had to re-record all of her early songs because the person that owned the masters wouldn't give to her because she didn't want to fit into the mold that they had for her, allegedly. And going off these young artists, we see a lot of manipulation take place. It's very easy to take advantage of someone that's young and eager and vulnerable. We mentioned how Lou Pearlman was able to sign a bunch of new bands and artists after he was found to be a fraud, honestly. Um, And you might wonder, why would so many performers sign deals with him and work with him after he was known to scam people? To many, this is their only opportunity they have to make it in this industry and pursue their dreams. And they needed to take this opportunity despite the risks. Lou knew this and preyed on these young artists' desire to become successful. A member of Take 5 said that his attorneys admitted that their contract was bad, but he also said, how many music contracts will you get in your lifetime? Others knew working with Lou could be career suicide, but they knew this was their one shot. This desire also makes it easy for people to get taken advantage of as well, and young performers, we see this in many facets of the entertainment industry. Gary Coleman, as a kid, got taken advantage of by his parents. Macaulay Culkin was taken advantage of by his parents. There's, you know, a laundry list of people. And unfortunately, at the heart of a lot of this manipulation is money. People find different ways to make money and they use their kids to do it. And as the world changes, unfortunately, it seems like parents find a different way to exploit their children. You see a lot of times with YouTube family channels now. So if your kid can't act or sing, there's still a way for you to try to make money off them. And I think that Lou knew this and knew that he was getting people that would only be looking at the short-term dollar signs and not really reading the nitty-gritty of these contracts that they were signing. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, Del. That's such a good point. We also saw how Lou was able to build these performers up and gave them everything they needed to feel secure. That trust he created allowed him to deceive everyone. Lou was seen as a friendly person who could talk to anyone in the room. He always wanted to have fun. His appearance was a far cry from a typical record executive that's cold and a little unfriendly. And this friendly personality helped him rope people in. It helped him rope people in to the music industry. It helped him rope people in, investors in, to his different programs as well. And because of this kind of the two faces of Lou Pearlman, the band members had a hard time coming to terms with their betrayal. Lance Bass said, quote, he helped start my career. He funded it. I don't know where I'd be without him. So you have to give him that credit, end quote. And he also said, quote, you hated him, you loved him, and it pissed me off that he passed away. And I can't even imagine having to deal with all that, especially at a young age, too. These bands weren't around for very long. The Backstreet Boys 
boys, their success was really big for like six years in the 90s. And to go through such a massive, not rise and fall, but such a roller coaster with your management is crazy. But I guess it is kind of typical and maybe a little standard, not surprising for this industry that we're talking about. In addition, Lou used the success of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC to defraud people. And like we mentioned, he used that photo of Alan Gross's model plane to trick people into thinking his airline was legitimate. And in his book, Bands, Brands, and Billions, he essentially stole Alan Gross's life story. One of the things he said was that he won a contest with Goodyear Blimp, which didn't happen to him, that happened to Alan, and that he could see the blimps outside of his bedroom window. And that also wasn't true. That was Alan who could see them out the window. Alan was the one that got Lou into airplanes and blimps in the first place. There's also this story that he tells, I guess it's in his book, but he would tell it to his boy band members as well, about how when he was a kid, he had other kids sell their paper routes to him, and he ran this very successful paper route business that catered to buyers needs and he even got deals with donut shops and that he would bring coffee and donuts to people with their papers and none of this was true according to the kids who had these paper routes that he grew up with another friend mentioned that lou never gave direct answers but he could give enough details that made it seem like he had answered your question and that he was listening the whole time which is like a master manipulator move we hear that a lot with different entrepreneurs i will say i do find it a little strange that neither the backstreet boys or insane either the members, the parents, anyone picked up on any of Lou's tactics or the recoupables when reviewing the contract. And Del, you mentioned the parents and I kind of wonder, I don't really know the boys' backstories and what their lives were like beforehand, but I do kind of wonder if any parents just kind of wanted them to become the family business. It didn't really look into the contracts. I don't know if you have any thoughts on maybe why this happened in the first place. So I think that it definitely comes down to most contracts are written in such legalese that unless you have a professional reviewing it, you have no idea what things actually mean. I'm sure there was so much excitement for them too that they really just wanted to take this opportunity that they had. And we said this so many times, but they were young. I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't understand what some of the terms were. I wouldn't understand what they were. And I'm sure not all of them were very familiar with the entertainment industry and the importance of having a lawyer on your side. If we have any listeners trying to get into any kind of entertainment industry, please have a lawyer. Please have someone you trust on your side. One of our sources for this episode is the Boy Band Con documentary. You can find it on YouTube. It was produced by Lance Bass and I definitely recommend everyone check it out. It was a lot of fun for me to watch and one of the things that was so fun was in the beginning you see how the bands come together and you see these crazy outfits that NSYNC had on and you listen to all the fun music that just brings you back. Del, did you have a favorite boy band now or as a a kid? Definitely. I am someone who's a music lover. Um, I can basically listen to anything as long as it has lyrics um, to it. So, oh my gosh, trying to pick a favorite is so hard, but 
NSYNC is definitely up there. Destiny's Child is up there. So yeah, just off the top of my head, I think those would be my top choices. How about you? I was definitely a Backstreet Boys fan more so than NSYNC. I had a crush on Brian Luttrell as a kid. Um, I remember seeing him, like their face on a magazine in CBS and just thinking like, oh my God, he's so cute. And I remember too, this is so weird, but I remember that Burger King had a promotion with them and like you could get the black and blue CD with one of their meals. And I had like a whole bunch of the CDs after eating at Burger King. I do love Tearing Up My Heart. That's such a good song, but Backstreet's Back, who is not like running to the dance floor when you hear that, like at a wedding, at a bar, like anything like that. So fun. Uh, I love Destiny's Child too. I said I loved TLC. I absolutely love the Spice Girls. I had a Spice Girls, my birthday party last year was Spice Girls themed. I had a Spice Girls cake Um, and I saw them on their reunion tour, which is so fun. I hope they come back, you know, in the the after times. I hope they can come back and tour. I would love to see them. I definitely had um, dolls too. I had Brittany and Christina and I had the Spice Girls too. Oh my gosh, the Spice Girls, every time I think of them, and I definitely still have their music playing on repeat. I also love video games, and there was actually a Spice World video game to go with the movie that they released, and I would constantly be playing the video game and watching the movie and trying to unlock the secret scenes, so it's definitely a fond memory for my childhood. Uh, Spice World is one of my favorite movies, and I don't even mean that, like, Ironically, I'm obviously talking from a nostalgia point of view, but it's such a fun, silly movie. And as I'm growing up, that's so weird to say as a 26-year-old, but as I get older, I definitely am just more comfortable in myself. And I love fun things. I spent so much time as a teenager being so serious, liking such like serious alternative rock. But I will jam out to a boy band so hard now as an adult woman. Listen, you know what they say, sometimes when you're listening to music, you want that broody you know like stan or corn (laughs) (laughs) but other times it's just like no i just want to belt my lungs out with my poor singing voice um to celebrity and pop and bye 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 yes we love them all And we wanted to end on a fun note talking about these boy bands and why we love them so much because there's actually a little bit of a science behind it. Boy bands have been around for decades and include the Jackson 5, the Monkees, Menudo, and some would even argue that the Beatles were a blueprint for modern boy bands and I definitely agree with that. Many boy bands are developed by record producers, scouts, and industry professionals which was a similar case for the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and we still see this with K-pop bands like BTS. Boy bands are generally made up of three to five members and are created to appeal to everyone. And this is done in part so that every fan is attracted to something in the group, whether it's their hair, their style, or vocal talents. And Nick Carter said, quote, boy bands give people the right to be able to choose who their favorites are and who they can relate to. Everyone can find something that they can call their own, end quote. Paul Hokemeyer, a relationship therapist, mentions the 
psychology behind our boy band nostalgia and why if you like one boy band, you're more likely to like another. He said this has to do with neuroplasticity and the way our brains crave the pleasures of our pit. If your brain was imprinted with a pleasurable cause and effect, it will desperately hold on to the memory recall. We stick to what worked. So that's why Dell and I loved listening to Backstreet Boys and NSYNC back in our younger days and we still would belt out the lyrics now. And really, they're just fun to watch and listen to. Who doesn't like some feel-good music? Boy bands play generally simple and catchy pop music, but the genres can vary. They generally don't play instruments or write their own songs, which is often a reason why they're looked down on upon people other than their fans. But there are exceptions to this, including BTS, who write their own songs, and the Jonas Brothers, who write their own songs and play their own music. Regardless of that, listening to music we enjoy releases dopamine into the brain, which causes us pleasure. And when we're together with other people who like this music, it makes us even crazier. As humans, we love social connections, and this can be anything from a music fandom to a sports or TV show fandom. When we fans get together at a concert, per se, something called collective effervescence happens, which is a connection that comes out of being in enthusiastic groups. And there's a catharsis that comes out of the screaming and dancing. And doing so can actually help us communicate and connect with one another. And I can definitely stand by this. I went to see the Jonas Brothers last year on their comeback tour. This was my first boy band concert ever, actually. (laughs) And I loved just the positive female energy that was around me. It was people in their 20s like I was. There were younger girls. There were people there with their moms. And it was just so fun to be around that, to have everyone sing and dance. Sing with me to year 3000, (laughs) one of my favorites by them. And it's just so much fun. Have you had any experiences like that, Del? Absolutely. Um, As you know, I'm a big wrestling fan. And um, I love going to wrestling events. And it's that same feeling where even if (laughs) there's been so many times where I've gone by myself and I'm sitting next to someone I've never met and they just happen to like the person that I'm wearing that day. Um, And we start to have a conversation or we're seated next to each other and a theme song comes on and we both start belting out the lyrics together and just, you know, locking arms and just having a good time. So I definitely get I've definitely felt a sense of being one with a whole group of people because you share such a passion for something. It's a really cool feeling and I hope that everyone can experience more of this in their lives going forward. A lot of boy band fans kind of get a bad rep. I know that some fans are definitely notorious for like sending death threats and stuff. So we definitely don't encourage that, but we do encourage, you know, connecting with each other and kind of connecting with these celebrities and musicians that we idealize because it can have a positive influence on your mental health, not just from this catharsis, but it, um, helps with, I think, lower rates of depression and idealizing these celebrities or really anybody can help teenagers create their own identities and work on social skills and communication skills. So don't be giving all these teenage girls a bad rep. Be proud of what you like just because something, you know, you might get teased for liking something. Who cares? Who cares if it's not, you know, highly rated by some critic or whoever? Who cares? Like what you like. Be proud of it. 
enjoy things for you, not because other people want you to, and they want you to think something is good. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Lou Perman and who your favorite boy or girl band is. Make sure that you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform every Wednesday with a new episode and make sure you leave us a five-star rating and a comment. You can follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter and YouTube at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount that you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.